We're uh, continuing our catechism study today, and we're uh, on the subject of joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a very wonderful thing to be redeemed by our God. In the shorter catechism, we have seen that man's chief end, very first question, his primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we also saw through that, that though God created us as those who are living out this purpose, to live out this purpose, the whole human race was created to, to glorify God. And we rejected him as our God. And then we were not glorifying him and we lost our joy. So that is the, the result is that there is death, suffering, war, hatred, violence, immorality, and incredible misery and sorrow. That's what has been brought upon us. But God in his incredible mercy purposed beforehand that he would redeem a people out of that great fall for himself. Primarily that he would restore them to himself as God and make them to be his people. As he says to them again and again, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the essential covenant promise through the scriptures. That we who had rejected him, he takes back again to be his people. We have seen how he sent his only son to redeem us and how he was born of a virgin with a true human body, yet he was the son of God, with a true human spirit, and how he represented us and established a kingdom of righteousness in this fallen world. He had to pay the huge price to establish this kingdom of paying for our sins. He was required to bear the penalty of the sins that all his people committed, the very pains of hell that justice demanded so that they could be forgiven and free. He did all of this on the cross. And the result is that all who enter his kingdom by turning away from their sins, their own way apart from God, and trust in what Jesus has done to establish his kingdom, are blessed with forgiveness and righteousness and restoration to God forever. Truly, it is a wonderful thing to be redeemed. And it ought to make us glad Presently, we're looking at the benefits that we have in this life from redemption, things that should make us glad. These are summarized for us in question 32. So let's confess that question together. Question 32, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. So we've already had sermons on many of the benefits that are listed here. Uh, Justification is the benefit of being totally accepted by God through Jesus, where his righteousness is credited to us, and where his suffering and death is also put on our account so that we are forgiven and accepted. Adoption is the benefit of being received as God's children, where we have with Christ an eternal inheritance. Sanctification is the benefit of being transformed by the working of God's Spirit so that we become more and more like Him and are able to love Him and serve Him and to obey Him. 
And of course, if anyone has these benefits in Christ, then that person is going to have a whole lot of other benefits that go along with those that are associated with justification, adoption, and sanctification. Question 32 then refers to these other benefits as the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from those primary benefits. Some of them are summarized for us in question 36. And that's the question that we're looking at for several weeks because it has five parts to it. So let's confess question 36 together now. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. So far, we've looked at the first two of these other benefits, assurance of God's love and peace of conscience. So today, as we move along, we're going to look at the third one, which is joy in the Holy Spirit or joy in the Holy Ghost, as it says in the Catechism. Joy in the Holy Spirit is a subject of great importance, according to the Bible. I still remember how greatly I was impacted when I looked up all the times that the word joy or associated words like rejoice are used in the New Testament. It was about 35 years ago when I did that, that study And it was the first time that I had taught through the Shorter Catechism that I I did that uh, study. And when I looked up all the occurrences of joy, I was not only struck by how often it was used, a lot more than I thought it would be. I thought it would just be there a few times. But it was in there a lot. But also the prominence that it was given, that joy was given. This seemed like an extraordinary thing to me. I've never, never thought that before I did that study. For example, in Romans 14, when the Apostle Paul is talking about scruples that believers have, about food and wine and, and things like that, he then declares what really matters in Christ's kingdom. He lists three things. And the first two are righteousness and peace. Those are things that you might expect to have. But the third one is joy in the Holy Spirit. He says, Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, to me, that was a bit of a surprise that it was given such a place. But when you think about it, when we're dealing with scruples and things that maybe we have differences about as believers, that can really take away our joy. And so it it makes sense that that would be right in there with the others. But anyway, as I went on with my study, I found that joy was sometimes the stated goal of the apostles in their whole ministry, was to bring people to be joyful. Take Paul when he wrote to the Philippians from the Roman prison. Doesn't sound like a very joyful place, does it? But uh, the Philippians were worried that, that Paul would be executed. So that was dampening their joy. But he replied that, if he was, it would be a lot better for him because he would be uh, with Christ. And uh, personally, it would be better for him. But he also said that he was confident that God would deliver him because the Lord had 
shown him that he had a lot more work to do before he went away. And so then his ministry would continue. And, and, and to what purpose would his ministry continue, though? In Philippians 1.25, he says, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for what? The furtherance of your joy. So my ministry is going to be toward the furthering of people's joy by continued ministry. And then we have the testimony of the Apostle John. At the opening of his first letter, he says that he and his fellow apostles had the privilege of seeing and hearing and even touching Christ while he was on earth. And now they have been directed by Christ to declare what they have seen and heard so that other people learning about Christ can have fellowship with him and with the Father. And then he adds, 1 John 1, 4, and these things, okay, this whole epistle of 1 John that he's writing, these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. That's why John and Paul labored and suffered and kept on laboring and suffering and why they wrote in order that they might bring joy to God's people through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is no wonder that they had joy as a major goal because Jesus himself said that that was a goal of his own ministry. Before he was crucified, he said to his disciples, as recorded in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And remember, this was in a context where he was talking about all the suffering that they would be enduring as his people. So that kind of helps put it in context. And then in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, he comes before the Father as he prepares to go to the cross to depart from this world. And he says, John 17, 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, if joy was the goal of Jesus and his apostles in their ministry, should it not be our goal to have joy as his disciples? Of course it should. You need to pray that you would obtain joy in your walk with the Lord, and you need to work at attaining joy in the way that God calls you to. You need to know that Something is wrong if you're lacking in joy. And in teaching your children, you should aim to bring them into this joy that Jesus talks about and his apostles talk about. If you have even a little child that's always grumbling and growling and all those things, that's not appropriate for one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you know that we and our children are disciples of Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong here as I talk about this joy. Because I'm not talking about the flippant joy that comes when you have, you know, a good worship band or something like that, or a preacher who tells lots of jokes and everybody has, ah, oh, ha, 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 they have all, all this fun and everything and say, oh, I'm so filled with joy. But, or the kind of joy that churches try to drum up to make children enjoy the, the service, you know, like we're going to have, going to have clowns and a puppet show and happy clappy songs with hand motions and then they'll enjoy church you know that that kind of a thing 
And I'm certainly not talking about the kind of joy that is taught by some of the popular um, TV preachers and such that tell you how Jesus wants you to be rich and, and successful in the world so that you can always have joy because you'll have everything that you ever wanted if you serve the Lord and all of that kind of nonsense. Jesus himself did not do very well in this world. He had a single garment that he wore when he was crucified. That was his possessions that they divided and they decided to not tear the garment, but to just cast lots for it instead. That was all, they didn't have enough stuff to distribute around to the, uh, uh, the soldiers of, of the things that they would get. Uh, neither did his apostles do very well. They were not wealthy men in this world. So that's not the joy that he's talking about. It's not the joy that he had that he says that he wants us to have. The joy they're talking about is a joy that transcends the superficial joy that anyone can experience, believer or unbeliever, godly or ungodly. They're talking about, Jesus and his apostles, joy in the Holy Spirit, which only a believer can experience. It's the joy that is described as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is not contrary to the joy that we have when riches increase or when we enjoy good music and feasting. And in fact, we should enjoy those things as God gives them to us to enjoy in this world. But that's not the joy we're talking about here. This is a joy that is also very present when we're suffering, when we're very sick, when we're in poverty, when things are closing in on us, when there's threats and things. In fact, this joy that I'm talking about is all the more conspicuous at those times than it is when things are going well for you in a worldly sense. It is a joy that is deeply rooted in the Lord and not dependent on our circumstances. I remember when I became a new Christian, I had had a, uh, growing up, I had a pretty easy life with, uh, you know, my mom paid paid for my university straight out and had all, you know, I had kind of what I wanted and, you know, bought a big expensive stereo or all those kind of things. And I got my joy out of, uh, out of those kind of things. When I became a Christian, I kind of almost recoiled from some of those, those things because it was, it was, I wanted to have, you know, this, this other kind of joy that was dependent upon the Lord. And one of my phrases that I had as a new Christian at that time is circumstances don't matter. You know, so that whatever I had or didn't have in this world, that was not the point. The point was that I had communion with the Lord and fellowship with Him. And that was a very helpful thing in just realizing that, that, you know, it's not just about getting something new that I wanted or something like that. Our present circumstances with difficulties that um, so many of us are, are facing now with even things that are associated with COVID-19, you know, there's this is something that affects all of us. And we need to see this as a wonderful opportunity to know the joy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, if something is pulling you down and discouraging you, you need to see that God is, that, that, that it's an opportunity to experience this joy. God has taken away many things from us that naturally give us joy. So this is a time to look for the joy that comes supernaturally from God's Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the foundation of this joy in just a minute. 
And then after we've done that, we'll look at how joy ought to be seen in various aspects of our lives. But first, let's go to our scripture reading. I bet you were wondering if I was ever going to get to that. I wanted to do the, the, the first point uh, of, the, of the sermon before I did the scripture reading uh, because I wanted to show you how important joy is in the Bible and then do the reading. So I hope that after seeing this, the Holy Spirit has given you a desire to have joy in the Holy Spirit, even as we go now to our scripture reading. So please give your attention as I read these words to you, written by Peter, given to him, of course, by the Holy Spirit. First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read that first chapter. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the la- in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children not conforming yourselves to your former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am, un- for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible 
through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And there we end the reading of God's word. So the word of God is forever, the gospel that we have believed. We believe and we're joined to that word, that promise of God, and then we have eternal life forever because the word, the promise is eternal and we have that promise from God. We, we have, as it says in this whole passage I read, the Holy Spirit. And through that comes joy in difficult circumstances. Peter is writing to them about difficult circumstances. And so he begins with the, this chapter that we just read. You can see from what he says about this joy that it is something quite extraordinary. Not only does he say that believers greatly rejoice even though they have been grieved by various trials, but in verse 8, he refers to this joy as joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's a joy that is beyond words and in the middle of hardships, a joy that is beyond words. Clearly, this is something you want to know about. (laughs) This is not normal. (laughs) So what is it that fills the believer with joy? What is the source of our joy? First of all, understand that true Christian joy is not just a feeling of euphoria. I'm sad to see that this is what a lot of people are looking for today. That's why people will take drugs, whether prescription or non-prescription, to make them feel better. And some people go to church to get pumped up by pep talks or rousing musical performances. And they say, oh, I feel so much better now. But this is no good if there is not a root to that joy. If it's just a feeling that's not connected to anything substantial. It can be just as bad if you have joy from a wrong root as well. For example, if you have joy in riches that you amassed by covetousness, or if you have joy in a new affair that you got into, or joy from deceiving people about something, that kind of joy is obviously no good, for that's rejoicing in wickedness. I mean, a guy goes out and robs a bank successfully, and he's filled with joy. That's not the kind of joy that we want to have. It's a wrong root. Or you might have joy from a false hope. Like Mordecai did. You remember in the book of Esther? Mordecai, he he was full of joy because the king came to him and asked him what ought to be done for the man that the king wishes to honor. And Mordecai said, who could that be but me? And so he says, well, you know, uh, what what, what you should do is uh, that man ought to be put in fine clothes and paraded around town on one of the king's best horses by one of his leading servants and led by one of his noble servants. And the king said, that's a good idea, Mordecai. Okay, well, you're one of my noble servants, so I want you to get a horse and I want you to to lead around um, my, uh, I, I, I can't think of the guy's name, I can't. Can't see it. My, what is it? Oh, thank you. That's why I got confused. I was using the wrong name. Yeah, Haman was the guy that was saying all that. So erase everything I said. <laughs> Haman is the man 
that was saying that, and his, uh, his enemy was Mordecai. And uh, so Mordecai was, uh, I, I got it my, my notes wrong. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the joy that, that Mordecai had was, was, was no good. Or I'm sorry, that Haman had. <laughs> the, the joy that Haman had was no good because it was not founded in something that was, that was substantial and lasting. It was from a false hope. He thought he was going to be paraded around, and instead he had to parade Mordecai around. Well, earlier in this week, as I was thinking about preaching on this subject, joining the Holy Spirit, I was actually looking forward to preparing to preach on this. And the reason for that is because I remember that when I preached on this subject about five years ago, that I was greatly encouraged from it. You know, always, whenever I've done this subject, it's been, a, it's, it's been an encouraging thing to me. But to my surprise, I, I found in my notes, which, you know, I'm pretty much following from what I preached before, that I had actually shared with you at that time a struggle that I had in preparing to preach a sermon about this. And the reason was because I was trying to prepare a sermon on joy when I didn't have joy. I was praying earnestly that God would help me to be able to explain to his people, to you, what joy in the Holy Spirit is and to apply that in a way that would be helpful when I was lacking in joy at the time. I realized that rather than praying that I would be able to explain joy, I needed to pray that I would have joy and that you would have joy. And because we don't need to know about joy it's something that we actually need to have. And so don't just go away saying, well, now I know about joy today. You want to go away having joy. And it's not just going away from a service. From one service. It's, it's something to incorporate into your whole life. And this was actually kind of encouraging to me because this week, again, <laughs> it always happens when you preach on something like joy. But I, I, had, a, I had a very, I had a struggle to maintain joy this very week. And I, I've encouraged some of you about that this week, that you talked to me about how you're struggling with joy and you know, discouragement. And it was often associated with the, the virus and that sort of thing. And you know, for, for you to realize and for me to realize that God sent these things that we might grow in the joy of His salvation. So in other words, He gives us hard things and it pushes us back on the th- place where we really need to find joy, where it's essential that we find joy. Thankfully, though it has been hard this week, I've been looking in the right place, and I'm very excited now to speak to you about this subject. Because I think that really, even five years ago, when I, I was going through this, that, that since that time, there's been a change where when I wake up in the night and I'm feeling all you know, discouraged, start to feel discouraged about things and that sort of thing, to be able to turn back and look at the foundation of my joy and to be able to renew that joy, to see how good the Lord is and how gracious He's been and to turn away from those dark and, 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 and wrong feelings. Like I told you recently when I preached on Isaiah 40, I think we all need words that will encourage us to find our joy in the Lord at this time. We want to find joy by our problems going away, by our circumstances changing. But that's not what God has for us. 
Yes, we, we all have joy if we're true Christians. But in our day and in our part of the world, we have joy at a very low ebb. It's not very great joy. That's why we're so weak. We so often get our joy from something new that we got or a pay raise or, or that kind of thing. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And if we have, if our joy is at a low ebb, then we're weak and we're going to easily fall into sin and temptation. We're going to be enticed by the things in the world that are around us. We're going to be powerless in our witness. We have issues when we don't have joy with anger and with lust, with anxiety, with depression, with covetousness. I mean, it just goes on and on. There's problems when we don't have joy in the Lord, in the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at the source of our joy as Christians so that we can have true Christian joy, not so we can know about it, but so we can have it. Okay, let's look at how Peter describes the source of real joy. First of all, Peter says that Christians have joy because we have an amazing inheritance from heaven. You look, at, look at it this way. If you are an orphan in some oppressive regime, and if you, uh, you know, you've got a not-so-nice uncle that is looking after you because your parents are dead, and, you know, he abuses you and mistreats you, and if you discover that in three years he's going to sell you into slavery so that he can make some, some money off you, and you're going to be put to forced labor in some smelly factory somewhere where they'll whip you when you don't, even when you do your work, especially when you don't, and where they hardly give you adequate food and clothing, how glad you would be if you then received information that some rich person had taken note of you and was going to adopt you as his own son and bring you into his family. It would be as if you were born all over again into a new family. As soon as you heard about the arrangements even if you had to remain at your uncle's house for a couple more years, you would rejoice with great joy because of what was the inheritance that you had, what was ahead of you. Of course, you understand the illustration. That's exactly what has happened to us as believers. In verse 3 and 4, Peter says that we have been begotten again by God the Father. We were in bondage to Satan, miserable taskmaster. And we realized where we were headed to an inheritance in hell. But now we have been begotten by God. He has adopted us into his family so that we are his children now. We have been born into a new family, begotten again. And now instead of going to hell, we are going to heaven. It's an exact opposite. You see what Peter says about this inheritance. He says in our text that it's a living hope. Something that is future. Okay, a hope is something in the future. Don't have it right now. You have it as a, a hope, but not in its substance yet. It's a living hope that lives with us all the time. It encourages us and delights us all the time. Because we know that Death is not the end. He says that it is an inheritance. We did nothing to earn it. You don't earn an inheritance. You're born into it. You're given it 
by where you're born. They are freely given to you. The inheritance is freely given to you because you were born into your family. And Peter tells us what a marvelous inheritance this inheritance is. It is incorruptible. It can't be damaged by rust or by inflation that devalues everything. It is undefiled. There's nothing wrong with this inheritance. No flaw in it because it's an inheritance with God. It will never fade away. It will never lose its appeal or its value. It is reserved in heaven for you. It is truly heaven in heaven, and heaven is the place where God is. You have a place there, a reservation. Just like if you're going on a vacation, you have a reservation at a beautiful resort or something, and you look forward to it, you've got a reservation there. This is what you have to look forward to. You're going to live in God's house. And we're absolutely sure of this inheritance. We are sure of it because God has given it to us in his word. And we believe him. He has promised it. Faith is not a leap in the dark where you say, oh, I I have faith. I believe that everything is going to turn out okay. I talked to a friend of mine from high school and I was telling him after I'd come to the Lord about, you know, my conversion and I was encouraging him to look to the Lord. Oh, I've got faith, he said. And as I explored a little bit, I discovered that his faith was, yeah, yeah, I just have confidence everything's going to turn out okay. It wasn't founded on a promise. It wasn't founded on God's promise. It was just wishful thinking is what his faith was. Faith, then, is believing what God has said, what he has revealed to his people through the holy prophets that he has sent and what is now recorded for us in the holy scriptures. We don't just believe stuff to make us feel better. It does make you feel better if you just believe stuff. But that's not the point. We believe what God has promised, and he has promised that we are begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're told that God has even given us this faith to believe and that he keeps us believing through difficult circumstances. Because you might say, well, what if I go away from it? What if, what if I turn away from this? Well, you can see in verse 5 through 9, he speaks of us as those who, verse 5, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You often hear me pray those words in my prayers that, that, thank you, Lord, that we're kept by the power of God through faith. So he keeps us believing. He sustains our faith. And as long as we keep believing, which we will because he sustains us, then we will keep on rejoicing. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is an amazing inheritance. It's sure to us because God has promised it to us. And he sustains our belief in his promise. The the more trying the times are, the more we have trouble, the more he sustains our faith and the more our joy increases. So something like COVID is very good for us. 
there are two things about this inheritance that fill us with great joy. First, that we're going to see Jesus, whom we love, revealed. That is the greatest thing of all about heaven. Heaven is a place where we see God revealed. This will happen when Jesus returns. Verse 7, Peter says, Peter refers to it as the revelation of Jesus Christ when Jesus appears. And again in verse 13, he speaks of the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we have to look forward to most of all in that inheritance is that we're going to see our Savior to depart and be with him. So the inexpressible joy that we have now is not just that we're going to heaven, but that when we get there, we will see Jesus whom we love, Jesus who has redeemed us. That's exactly what Peter says in verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The prospect of of seeing Jesus thrills us because we believe what God has told us about him. We believe that he really is the son of God. That he really did come in the human flesh for us. And that he did this, that, he would, that we might be begotten again to a living hope, to an inheritance in heaven through his resurrection, back in verse 3. He really did enter into our death, that he might lift us all out of death. And we really were redeemed by him. Verse 18 and 19, not redeemed with corruptible things, but by him. Not corruptible things like silver and, or gold, isn't that interesting? In God's economy, silver and gold are corruptible. In our economy, gold is not something we think of as being corruptible. But in God's, it is. It doesn't compare with his inheritance. Not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. We're going to see him in his father's house. We're going to see the love that the father has for us and that he has for the Father, and that he has had from all eternity. This Savior, who is God's Son, is going to be fully revealed in all of his glory, and we're going to inherit a place with him in that house where we can see that love that has been there all along. This hope is cause for inexpressible joy now, because this is what is going to be done. It's not what might be done. It's what is going to be done. And not only that, but Peter also says several times that we're going to receive full salvation in that day. That's the second thing that makes our joy full. God is going to finish the work that he started in us that we can live in his house as his, so that we can live in his house as his sons, as brothers of Jesus, our Savior. We're going to be completely saved. I mean, completely sanctified, completely transformed so that we're fit to live there. You aren't fit to live in this place now because of the sin that is in you. Already we have been pardoned and begotten again, but in that day we will be perfected. We will be made like Jesus when we see him. This is a lot of the stuff we talked about when we looked at adoption, isn't it? Look at how Peter repeatedly speaks of this future salvation that we're going to receive. In verse 5, he calls it salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In verse 9, he calls it the end or the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Verse 13, he calls it the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see that these twin promises are the source of a Christian's joy. That Jesus, whom we already love, will be fully revealed to us. That's the first thing again to review. And that we will be like him. That's the second thing. This is the hope of our heavenly inheritance. And this is the source of our present joy. That hope is the source of our present joy in this world. And I tell you, this joy is at a low ebb in North America among God's people. We need to get to know the Savior better, and then it will thrill us to think that we will see Him and that we will be like Him when we enter our inheritance. I tell you, if this joy is in you, it will transform the way you live. Peter speaks of several ways that it will transform you. We'll look at them briefly. First, that this joy, joyful hope will stir you to obedience. If you rejoice in the hope of being a beautiful son like Jesus, you will be eager to obey your father now. When we studied about sanctification as one of the benefits that Christ gives us when he redeems us, we saw that he is transforming us now to live for him. If we're going to live with him forever, then we need to get serious about living for him now. And we will if we have this hope. Look at how Peter expresses this, verse 13 through 15. Verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That grace that's going to transform you. That's the grace that comes when Jesus is revealed. The transforming grace that makes us perfect. Okay, Verse 14, as obedient sons, not conforming yourselves to your former lusts is in your ignorance. Not running after the, thing, the sinful things that you desired in your former days, but now desiring to be like Jesus and to serve God. You are God's children now, and soon you're going to live in his house. You have no business living as if you're not his children. So start conforming to his ways now, as Peter says in verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. People think of holiness as a, as a bad thing because they're worldly minded. Holiness is not bad. It's a beautiful thing. It's a thing where we truly do love one another and we truly do love God and where we delight in good things instead of vile things. The more you grasp the glorious hope of your inheritance, the more you will live a holy obedient life. Secondly, Peter shows that this joyful hope will produce fervent love in you for others. If you're a believer, then you love Jesus. You love him because he has done so much for you, coming to die for us that you might go to heaven with him. And as you admire this loving Savior and you rejoice in the, in the hope of seeing him, of seeing his eternal love with the Father, living in his house, it will produce love in you. You have already been born again as a son in this house, and that's going to have a visible effect on you. Look at how Peter expresses this permanent change in you in verse 22 and 23. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed 
through the word of God, which lives and abides in you forever. So you are born again by, by believing the promises of God. When those promises of God's word are in you, they're like a seed that produces life in you, that produces love in you. So the more that you're, you're rooted in that reality of that inheritance where we're going to see his love and we're going to love, then we're going to love other people. Now, instead of your strength being used to dominate other people and to exploit them, like the leaders we saw of the, in the, the church, in the Old Testament church when Jesus came, using it to dominate and exploit other people, you use your strength to help them and to bless them, to impart grace to them. You use your strength the way Jesus used his strength. The Christian view of heaven is not the place where you go to control other people, but the place where you go to be a blessing to them. Can you imagine if someone with the, all the, the power that Jesus had at his disposal were to come into this world and they weren't Jesus? Can you imagine what they would do with that power? I mean, they would be up on a big pedestal and everybody would be there uh, clamoring around, serving them like, like slaves and things. But our Lord Jesus, he used his power to lay down his life for us that we might be saved. So this is a totally different approach. And when we see that that's the kind of people that we're going to be in glory, we should aspire to be that kind of people now. And we will, if this is truly our hope. Thirdly, Peter shows that this joyful hope will make you submissive to God. This is reflected in verse 6 and 7, where he says of our faith being tested by fire, by various trials that grieve us. He explains that even in such trials, we keep on rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory because of hope. The trials do not bother us so much because we know that our Father loves us and that He has a purpose in those trials. They're part of the process of preparing us for our glorious inheritance, to purge us from our old way of living and to deepen our love for Christ. And they, they are used to testify to other people in the world and the church of our love for Jesus and our hope in God's promises. We are patient even when we're mistreated by others. And as Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15, that makes them want to know what the reason of your hope is. Why are you acting that way? Why are you being kind to me when I'm abusing you? Why are you treating me well? That, That becomes the question. They see that you're not living for this world, but for the world to come, that your hope is elsewhere. So many Christians today are suffering at the hands of their enemies. And this is how their light shines because they're submissive to that suffering. They're not always looking how they can get out of it. You see, because they say, God has put me here to testify of his kingdom. God has put me here to shine as a light for him in these miserable circumstances, this prison, this this torture that I'm experiencing, whatever it is, to show everyone that my kingdom, the kingdom that I've been given by God is not of this world and that I love them even when they do these things to me. The, this patience is what Peter will later refer to in chapter 3, 1 through 7, is a meek and quiet spirit, the spirit that we ought to have when we're mistreated in the world. He says it is precious in the sight of God 
because it shows that we're trusting in our Father when hard things happen. We know that the Father loves us and that He has our best interest in mind, that, that He's giving us a chance to shine for Him and to grow in His grace. This is where false religion is completely opposite to true religion. In false religion, people try to get control of God or of forces. You know, they try to tap into some resource or some power, some spell that they can cast, whatever it might be. Um, But in true religion, we learn to rest in God's wisdom and to give ourselves joyfully to his purposes like Jesus did. See, people come to God to get control, right? I want to get dominance. I want to have power. So I'm going to follow God. No. We come to God to submit to what he had, the school of instruction and teaching and training that he has for us to make us more like Christ. You find joy in doing what he wants instead of joy in getting him to do what you want. That's the opposite. You know, the false religion says, you know, God, I want that. I want that new car. I want that new house. I want that relationship. I want whatever it is. And then you rejoice because I got it, you know, if you did get it. But true religion says, Lord, your will be done. And if you don't get the relationship that you wanted or you have a disappointing one, then you say, Lord, you have given me this. You're submissive. Lord, teach me through this what I need to learn so that I can grow and I can rejoice in, in my inheritance and in what you have provided me and I can show love even though I'm not being loved right now. It's a whole different way of looking at life. This joy in the Lord and in His promise will be, promises will be reflected in your prayers that way. Instead of trying to control Him with your prayers, you will be submitting to Him with your prayers the way Jesus did at Gethsemane. Instead of praying that your neighbor will stop harassing you, You'll pray that you'll honor God while your neighbor is harassing you. Instead of praying that you'll be able to triumph over your neighbor, you'll pray that you'll be able to help him in some way. Those are the kind of prayers that God delights to answer. And those are the kind of prayers you pray when you're rejoicing, not in this world, but in the hope of heaven. What Peter talks about, writing to people that were being mistreated as slaves as uh, he talks to, to wives, he talks about people under oppressive governments. He talks about, that's, that's, if you read the, all of 1 Peter, that's what you see. What is it? The foundation of joy. So my brothers and sisters, we need to start rejoicing in the hope of heaven, in seeing Jesus and in becoming like him. That is our inheritance in his salvation. And that's where our heart needs to be. Don't you agree that we have far too little joy in the hope of our inheritance? Can you really say that in your trials that you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory? I'm not sure that many of us can say that. If, if you're a believer, God always gives you at least enough hope and joy so that you don't turn away from him. And that's a wonderful thing. He promises to maintain that. And so you don't get so down on that you reject God altogether. But we want to see a growth where we have this joy inexpressible, full of glory in times of great trouble. Surely our joy is at a low ebb compared to what Peter describes here. Let us then, in accordance with the Holy Spirit's directive in verse 13, 
rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May it be so. Let's ask the Lord. Please stand. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you and praise you for redeeming us. We thank you for sustaining us so that we have joy in our service to you that keeps us from altogether rejecting you and going away from you. But Father, we know that sometimes we do go away in sin. And we thank you that still there is a seed that remains with us so that we are restored. But Father, we want to grow into this maturity that Peter speaks about where we rejoice with joy inexpressible that is full of glory, even in the midst of of the most difficult of trials. We see that the people that Peter was writing to, a lot of them were slaves that were beaten when they didn't even do anything wrong. And that's the kind of people he's writing to here and telling them about this joy. This isn't some kind of a a cardboard joy that is, is there. This is something very deep and very rich and very real. And it is a joy that, that is not of this world. It's from your Holy Spirit that you give to your people and the, the hope of the promises that you have given us. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to rest our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we would have a rich hope that holds on to that so that when things come that beat us down and that bring us to, to despair and discouragement and, and whatnot, that we will not give way to those things, but that we will be able to continue with our joy. Oh, Lord, please help us, Lord. We really need this. And the Christians in our land, we need this today. Lord, we pray that you would work in us. We may be in for some very trying times. We think that People are always talking about 2020 being such a hard year. But Father, there, things can be much worse than what they are now. We think about some of the things that our forefathers have endured. And doesn't even, what we have endured doesn't even come close, doesn't even compare. And I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, that you would help us, Lord, that we would become more and more adept at finding our joy in our inheritance that you have given us and not in the passing pleasures of this world. Lord, we thank you for the things that we enjoy in this world. They are your gifts and they are good things. But Father, we don't want to be so shallow that that's all we have, that that's all that keeps us going is a good turn of events that came out. We want to have this this joy that is described in your word by Peter. So Lord, our eyes are on you. May the Holy Spirit, may we we be filled with the Holy Spirit that we may have this hope secured to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Blessing of the Lord. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.